0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of our podcast. Happy Friday. It's Friday, Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. Much appreciation. This is where we finally get to a follower's question. We took some steps to get here, but I hope the last few episodes can be seen as a kind of preference preface to the followers question and in short it's more let's just kind of generally s- summarize the question it's how how would or how does or how can a dojo deal with a problematic student and I think this this actually comes up quite a bit in contemporary dojo Especially in the West, um, it's almost unheard of in in Japan. You might have somebody that's a little odd, but nowhere near as odd, or even as subversive or destructive as you would, or you could have in in the dojo in the United States, for example. I mean, there can be, and there often is, some very toxic people in. Aikido Dojo. For me, the possibility of such a person and such an experience of of that situation is just one more sign of the degeneration of the art at, at multiple levels, but let's just start at the fact that the art is claim to be about the reconciliation of conflict. Of course, I hold that it is much more than that. Uh, and one thing we'll return to often are the three marks of the art that I hold. And we'll, we'll talk about the first one, which is the, the gaining of access to the God consciousness or the cessation of the ego tripartite or the mystic, mystical experience or the reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy, however you want to understand it. So, if you're a follower of the podcast, and as recommended, you're also a follower on Facebook, on the website, on the blog, on the YouTube channel. Uh, these are not; these should not be specialized terms to you any longer. You should understand what we're talking about. But as modern Aikido has moved away from that marker, as it has become secularized, as it has adopted the West uh, materialism, it has degenerated across the board in unknown ways to the point where it's actually now incapable of even doing its contemporarily held or its modern tagline about being concerned with or dealing with the reconciliation of conflict so you can generate inside your dojo at a social level conflict you can of course expand this to uh, the federation mentalities where these people can't get along with each other but it, it seems from a point of view and I'm, I'm going to kind of expand upon this, it should seem strange to us that it is now possible and and even likely that we can have a kind of asociality inside a hall of the way. Something is wrong. And what I'm going to suggest is that as we have discussed in episode after episode, there's a kind of Uh, softening or a cushioning, as was mentioned in the last episode on pseudo-spirituality. There's a kind of cushioning, uh, a modernizing, a self-indulgence going back to the episode on Chiba Sensei that happens as we move away from the key elements and the key technological components necessary for the mystical experience. And as a result, you not only no longer gain access to the God consciousness, you not only no longer have that as a mark of your training, as a North Star to the orientation of your practice, but you also simultaneously create space for the toxic individual inside your dojo and the possibility of the Training hall itself being a bastion for conflict, so um, I know from experience you'll see that most dojo deal with it in a functioning or through a functioning of the ego tripartite. So they'll give they'll hand that student over to the dojo enforcer, and we if you listen to. Uh, Podcast that I recommend on our Facebook page. Um, you'll you'll hear that. Yeah, give them over to the enforcer. Uh, the enforcer is going to enact their will to power, and they're going to outpower this per, this toxic person, and um, through a kind of um, pain compliance, uh, get them to either submit and get in line, align themselves, or get them to quit. Again, does this sound like Aikido? But that happens over and over and over again. Or you have the kind of passive aggressiveness uh, that is very suited to the, to the modern person, right? Because um, I would say back... Um, I was in a in dojo in the 80s uh, and I was the, I was one of the enforcers I was an enforcer but through the decades that has gone away more and more and what you get now in in the contemporary dojo as people have moved away uh, more and more from uh, violence uh, holding any virtue uh, moved away from viable warrior traditions, um, move towards a feminization of society on a larger uh, unconscious scale, etc., etc., all the things we've been talking about, what you end up getting is not the enforcer, this toxic person is not handed over to the enforcer, Uh, you get a kind of passive aggressiveness towards that person. So they'll be more socially ostracized. Um, people will isolate from them, you know, very very, very much um, a kind of feminine response to those be- those people. So we'll talk about them behind their back, we'll gossip, um, but we'll never, ever confront them, never directly. We will never go up to them and say, this, be- this behavior is asocial. It is not permitted here. You can stop or you can leave. That's too terrifying. And again, remember we're doing Budo, which is about the reconciliation of fear. And here we have people that they're too afraid to just tell someone point blank. They have to beat around the bush. They have to hope they figure it out because we're not going to tell them. These are very strange things for Aikido, but they're very, very common now. So going back in, in, in some of the things that were mentioned, um, in previous podcasts, we referenced uh, through the last several episodes the vinaya. So just to touch your memory again, Budo, again, is an extension of Buddhist thought. And again, we're speaking generally here. Why generally? Because um, the geographical time and space where the possibility of Budo originated did not have these clear, distinct separations of contemporary uh, university disciplines. So it wasn't like Buddhism existed in some sort of vacuum away from other schools of thought, and no one was interested at all in having it understood as such. That's something for university course catalogs. But when the possibility of Buddha arose, it it would not have arisen without the presence of Buddhist thought. It kind of opened the door for it. And if we look at Buddhist thought we see, or we can see uh, three levels of discourse. Generally you have the teachings of the Buddha. You have the philosophical extensions or commentary on the teachings of the Buddha. And then you have the monastic code. And as was mentioned in the last episode, when the possibility of a way manifested in China and it opened the door for such training to take place outside of monastic ordination and outside of the temple. Those early pioneers in such traditions took as much of the temple culture as possible. And so by default, they maintained as many components of the given technology of self. And it is that which made Budo viable as a technology of self. It is that maintenance of those technological components that allowed Budoka to still gain access to the God consciousness through their Budo. But as we move forward through time, things start to be taken out. This is all what was mentioned in the last episode, but in greater detail. And eventually, we're missing components. Now, it's interesting, because as Buddhism as an academic study, which is really how the West understands it more and more, and it is also how uh, East Asians now come to explain their practice to the world as they put it in Western frameworks. And there is a huge case for the fact that it was actually Asians themselves who did this first, trying to address the gravity they felt for modernity and Western culture. What the West did with their prioritization of the intellect over and through their body-mind separation, a post-enlightenment position, is they focused in on the teachings of the Buddha, something they could make distinct through the functioning of their ego tripartite, which, which looks for distinction, so something they could make distinct from Confucius, from Kung Fu, from Confucian thought, from Taoist thought, from Christianity, from Hinduism, and they slice up the pie like a good ego tripartite functioning unconsciously. And because of the prioritization of the intellect, they focused in on the philosophical commentary. And what happened to the Vinaya, the monastic code? It's like it's not translated, it's not important, it's not central. Now, the irony is this if you go into a Zen temple, what is going to hit you most, like if you, if you just want to monitor your experience of it, what is going to hit you most is not going to be the philosophy or the teachings of the Buddha. It is going to be the monastic code. And when I say hit you most... I mean, what is going to preoccupy you the most? What is going to challenge you the most? What is going to generate a stress adaptation, transformative process in you? What are you going to struggle with most? What is going to drive you to quitting most of all? To not understanding, to, gra- to struggle to grasp Why? It's going to be the monastic code. It's going to be the Vinaya. And as Aikido has degenerated, Buddhism has degenerated too, and you can fast forward to the West now and you have these mindfulness movements. And what they are, first and foremost, is no Vinaya, no code. If I could metaphorically or through analogy refer to myself having been a former scholar of religion and having been a practitioner of the way of the mystic for coming on 40 years now. If I could see myself as an engineer of a technology of self, In the same way that I have said that there's nothing in Aikido Kihonwaza in and of itself that is transformative, that it as a technology of the self is non-functioning, that Ikyo Nikkyo, Sankyo is never, ever going to grant you access to the God Consciousness. In that same way, meditation whether it be Zen-derived or not, is never going to give you that access either. It is in the code. Why? Why? Why is it in the code? Why is it that all the Buddhist schools that do exist today are all over the map with what the Buddha said Or how to understand what the Buddha said. But are pretty much in agreement when it comes to the monastic code. And I'm not talking about the western corruptions of like a mindfulness movement. The reason why they're in agreement is because this is actually the functioning part of the technology of self. You can screw around a lot with what the Buddha said or how to understand it. You can just, you don't even need it. You need the code. Because the code functions at the level of being. The philosophy And the reflection upon the teachings of the Buddha or the teacher, whatever sage you're looking toward, is only a part of your being, a very small part. And as such, it is a very small part of your experience of the world. But how you live, which includes how you eat how you drink how you sleep how you speak how you th- and how you think in the face of others that's going to capture all of you and so as we trace budo through history and it starts to get more self indulgent and it starts to get more westernized and more secularized and it loses access to the God conscious as it moves forward through time to our present moment it gave up more of the code meaning it gave up more of Buddha as a way of life it became a philosophy and as such it's pretty much something you do it is not who you are it is not Your experience of the world. It's something you do and by extension you don't need to do it all the time. You can go an hour here or an hour there. It's a hobby and now you've opened the door for someone to come into the dojo whose being is not put in to the training itself. Meaning You're coming in the dojo in the past where who you are is the problem that is being solved for. But today, it's not. Today, you learn some techniques. You do some exercises. And then you go home and you continue to be that person. In the last episode, we we mentioned that when the possibility for Budo arose, one way of looking at it was that the walls that surrounded the temple grounds had to be expanded in the budoka's mind. So that if we fast forward to today, where you work becomes part of the temple grounds. It's not in an actual compound, but you treat it yourself as part of the compound. Meaning, you don't just practice the way when you come into the dojo. To practice the way when you come into the dojo is not to practice the way. To bring And to stop the ego-tripartite functioning either through the enforcer, the will to power through the enforcer, a yang variant of that mind, or going with the yin variant of that mind where we're passive-aggressive and gossiping and trying to socially isolate that person, so they just quit and go away on their own. What a viable dojo actually does, the Vinaya Code is still in play. And in the same way that you should feel 100% at ease as an instructor to say your foot goes over here, not over there you would issue those same corrections at personality levels because who they are is what the training is all about. There are several things that we do that have been mentioned in earlier episodes that lend themselves towards this position that who you are is actually what we're dealing with. We're not here to learn techniques. We're here to learn the skill of reconciling the ego. We're here to learn the skill of bringing a cessation to the ego tripartite so that we can gain access to the second mind. That is what the way is. That is what Budo does. And the first principle of that is that your ego attachment, your fear, your will to power, your generating of conflict, all of that, is part of the training equation. Which means it's part of the training, but the goal of the training is to get rid of it. Not to tolerate it. Not to overpower it. Not to hope it goes away on its own. But through self-transformation, it disappears. One of the first things that was mentioned in the earlier episodes was our trial period. So here you, we don't take adult walk-ins. Just like monastic orders don't take walk-ins. The only walk-ins we have, the only person that calls or emails or knocks on the door and is allowed on the mat is children. Because children are a kind of tourist. They do not understand life is suffering. They haven't lived through the woes and the desperation of existence. So you can go to a temple as a tourist. They'll let you walk around the grounds. But you don't see everything. And you don't do everything. So children are tourists. Visitors. But no no adult gets to just join. Now again, you got to go further back because a lot of schools cannot afford, they cannot financially afford to allow someone to train for free for however long it takes. So our trial period is four weeks, but it has been extended for a long, long time on many people. But there's a reason why. A dojo cannot afford a trial period. There's other things not in place. In part one and part two of the blogs on the transmission of a martial Aikido, other things related to this were mentioned in the blog on women in Aikido. Many dojo have become man caves for people, men, in their 50s and 60s. And whatever structures and concepts and discourses create the possibility of that, they're not going to be drawing a lot of students. So they're always on the verge of closing down. They do not have the financial resources where that is not in question. And so the, the idea that here's what you should do now is uh, let someone train there for one, two months for free, no charge. Give them all the weapons. Give them all their uniforms. Give them all your time. That, that idea is terrifying to them. So you have to get your house in order meaning you got to get all the components in place for this technology to function because letting someone in just out of nowhere into your temple with no concept of what do they really want what are they actually searching for and do you actually have the means to deliver that to them is just you're going to have a lot of people coming in there, not at all wanting what you do, but they're on your mat. And who can blame them when they want to say something as, no, 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 who, who I am is not part of training. Who, No, I just want to learn some moves. It doesn't matter if I'm a torturer or a wife beater. I'm just learning some moves. I don't agree that I need to be clean. It's fine that my feet are dirty and there's shit between my toes because I stepped on some dog shit on the way in. I can urinate all over your bathroom. That's not important. I'm just learning some moves. This person is not doing what you're doing, but you have nothing in place. That trial period is important. But doubly so, because the ability to have a trial period is telling you that you have all your other ducks in a row. You have other very important things in place. An inability to have a trial period is telling you you got some work to do. Not everything is in place. In another effort here at our dojo to expand those temple walls are the four disciplines. Again, we've had writings and podcast episodes on those. You can go ahead and review them. But here I want to talk to, about them in light of a monastic code, in light of a vinaya, in light of bringing who we are to a central position in the training. So the four disciplines capture four major areas of life where, if you look at them, there is no area of our lives that is now not part of the training. Those four disciplines are fitness with the focus on strength. Sleep hygiene with a prescription of eight to nine hours. Nutrition with a focus on an anti-inflammatory diet and a low calorie count. And the fourth one, the worldview. And that worldview was the perennial philosophy. When you cut to the chase, every single asocial behavior That would manifest in the dojo will return the deshi to one deviation in one of those or all of those four disciplines. Those four disciplines will even encapsulate an ankle twist, a breakdown in focus, an inability to commit to training stagnation in progress, regression in skill, health, wellness. Through those four disciplines, all of these things, all of the things we might be are made either an alignment with the way or a deviation from the way. But in most dojo, you eat how you want to eat, you sleep how you want to sleep, you work how you want to work. In, uh, in other words, almost every aspect of our lives is off the table. And as such, why would there not be space for the toxic deshi? You're you're almost creating that space. You're you're almost generating that person because you, you give them no process by which to transform themselves into someone other. One more technological component that I would say is key to the experience of the toxic student and moving away from the enforcer or the passive-aggressive solutions and instead bringing their problematic asocial behavior to be and hold the central position of training is the most potent technological component that Budo has to date. And that is the sensei-deshi relationship. Again, if you look at contemporary Aikido, if you go from those early pioneers where Buddhist schools generated the possibility of a non-ordained practice, those early pioneers kept the abbot-disciple relationship intact into the ses- sensei deshi relationship but as we've moved forward there's no such thing sensei are friends and dojo stand outside of sensei in the past not, there's that would be impossible zen held a mind to mind transmission so the buddha taught his and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. The temple was not the temple. The abbot was the temple. But as we move away from an interest in such level of development, as we make it mundane, for example, as we, as we go into mindfulness and all we're looking for is pleasure and some peace and some stress management and some success in our worldly aims, we're not looking anymore for access to the God consciousness. Then the key technological component, the abbot disciple relationship, we don't need it anymore. And this is how you get into these ideas where the techniques themselves is something magic in the techniques, something talismanic in the techniques hold the transformation possibility. Again, that's bullshit. But in the same way, you get this idea that there's a dojo outside of the sensei. You, you have to understand how, how all of these things correlate to each other. So I don't have a teacher, I do not have a teacher who has the Buddha mind. I do not have a teacher who has the capacity for accessing the God consciousness. Because he or she did not train in a viable technology of self. They're now reducing, as they have been reduced, and as, has, as everything has been made reducible to mundane, worldly things. So we're just learning Aikido technique. We're just learning Ikkyo and That's all we're doing. We don't need a code anymore. We don't need to integrate the totality of our lives into the training. We can show up an hour here, an hour there. And now it's the dojo that exists outside of the teacher. Here at this dojo, my deshi full well know, when I pass, when I die, this dojo dies. There's no building that is of importance. This entire experience here is but a sand mandala waiting for the wind to blow it out of shape. That whole idea that the dojo is something other than the abbot goes hand in hand with the federation system. You need teachers who are not the equivalent of the founder, but just delegates of a political body. All these things work together. So here, when a desi is in a is just writing me, let's say they they contacted me, just like people over the internet. I'm not their teacher. They're not in my temple. They're not within the temple grounds. I'm just Dave. They've been taught, a lot of them, as good federites. Valadeus Sensei like, I'm not your teacher. I am not in that kind of intimate relationship with you. I'm not some abstract political delegate of a consumer model. And likewise, a person in a trial period, I have not committed to them. They don't call me Sensei either. They call me Dave. And in that trial period, I am looking in a way to see if they're trainable and by which I mean, are they capable of entering into that kind of relationship? Because that is the key technological component for reconciling the ego. And that is what most people struggle with. And that is why it's key. That's why it's so potent. But that's also why contemporary Aikido wants that the least. Just like the mindfulness movement people, they don't want a code They don't want to venerate anything or anyone above themselves. It's very important to them because it's a whole practice meant to reify the ego, not to reconcile the ego. And that's why it's markers are peace, happiness, pleasure, success. It's very much trapped in the world because that's what the ego does. Well, likewise, the contemporary Aikidoka does not want the Abbot. They can't take it. The ego is so capturing of them that the process of detaching from the ego, is terrifying, is experienced as a threat, and the main technology towards that aim is abhorred. They want a friend. They want a peer. They want a suggester. Well, if you have such a dojo as that, again, by what means? would this toxic deshi ever become other? And why would he or she not come into your dojo? And why would you not have a fear response to them where you're going to either try to gain pain compliance by beating the shit out of them in a young masculine way, or in a feminized yin way, gossip about them. Socially isolate them. How would you be able to say, and by what means would you be able to say, this behavior is what we're training upon And here is a practice whereby and wherein you can cease that behavior. And it is delivered with no more anxiety over saying today is Friday. And is that not in accordance with the way? Is that not in accordance with an reconciled ego? Is that not in accordance with the art Claiming to be about reconciling conflict? Of course it is. So we have these, let's call them practices. They're part of the training here. They are a much larger part than doing ikkyo, nikkyo, sankyo. And it is a hearkening back to those early Budoka pioneers that took as much of the temple technology of self kept as many components as possible to keep it a viable practice it is a hearkening back it is a return to that viable technology of self and it is within that context that you would have something like A dojo etiquette. So when we talk about the Vinaya, it's not just your dojo etiquette. It's all those larger things that I just mentioned. We have many, many more. But those are the big ones. Why do I say they're the big ones? Because they're the ones that that have the catalytic energy for self-transformation. And thus for behavioral adjustment. It doesn't do any good to have a rule. You're not just after behavioral adjustment. You're after self-transformation. The behavior is being used as a symptom for the self-transformation that is necessary or as a window to see if it is happening and to what degree. Or as a marker for how to orient your practice of self-transformation. It's not a, a modern moral code where you go, that's wrong. Of course, it's asocial. Of course, we'd rather not want it. But as a way, we're interested more in how that behavior is indicative of the unreconciled ego. Because of how the unreconciled ego inhibits access to the God consciousness. And this is what allows in this case, me, the sensei to come up to that person and address their behavior without the fear response of enforcer or gossiper. And to provide them with a next move, not an either or. To incorporate the behavior, just as I would incorporate physical weakness, incorporating that trait into the overall training. It's within that environment that you have a dojo etiquette. And I would say that your dojo etiquette will, of course, have little particular things that come up specific to your environment. You'll see those things in the Buddhist vinaya. So, for example, due to your environmental conditions and your weather, your rain patterns and things like that, the length of your robe and how much ankle is exposed or not exposed is going to differ from another environment where the climate and such things is different. You'll have those particulars in your dojo. We have here a toilet that sometimes when you flush it does not reset itself. Not every school has such a toilet. So we'll have a particular in our etiquette addressing the larger point of awareness and self-deferment and not choosing convenience over the right thing and having a sense of social responsibility we get to put it in the etiquette in a particularity that says every time you use the toilet make sure it resets itself if that is observed to have not have happened it gets addressed as an awareness matter it does not get addressed as you broke the rule you didn't reset the toilet but it's particular to that toilet. Sometimes these things are set up on purpose. The deshi have here a sense that there's a lot of traps in the dojo. They are. They're awareness traps. I have them set up and put, you know, on purpose. You may have seen these large wood shelves in the gym. Some of those shelves are missing the pegs that hold them in place. In order to restock those shells with the items that are contained therein, you have to do it very mindfully because they all have to balance perfectly. The self-transformative element is this mindfulness, this not rushing, but doing things right. Becoming energetically sensitive so we don't go buy new pegs and make sure anybody and any mine can put those things back in place. You'll see this in, in temples all the time. In a Zen temple I was in in Japan, there was one beam going into the zendo. And the way the ground was, was, was shaped as you were entering the zendo, it was way more convenient to step on that beam as you enter it than to do the prescription, which was, do not step on that beam. The explanation was, this beam is actually from the original temple built centuries ago, because they get rebuilt periodically, do you see? But this one was kept all throughout those centuries. And so it came with a level of veneration, which came with a level of self-displacement, which required discipline, which required you not to do what was easy for you. As you were entering into the very hall where you commenced the practice of bringing cessation to the ego tripartite, what would another mind do? This is bullshit. I'm just going to step on it. That same Zen temple, as you went from one area of the temple grounds, there was a path you had to take. It was by prescription. You couldn't just go as the crow flies from where you were to the Zendo. You had to go through this path, it was far from straight. And as you turn right or left on this path, there would be icons where you had to do various ego-reconciling practices with prostrations and contemplations. It was not a matter of just taking the convenient straight line between point A and point B, which also required that you had to manage your time because you weren't going to get from where you were to the Zendo as quickly as you could be, as you could. You had to manage it. You had to account for all those right and left turns and all those prostrations prostrations and all those contemplations. Again, a modern, a mindfulness movement person would just go straight, step on whatever they were stepping on, Or even I don't need to go to the Zendo at all, I could just do it right here. Well, right here is what is reifying the ego. You already are right here. You don't have a you don't have a problem being right here. You don't have a problem being you. That's the problem. What you're not paying attention to is the problem you have turning right or left. Standing before this icon, walking over that beam, or bowing. How mindful can you be in the ego-attached state? And how ego-detached are you when you can't walk a path marked left here, right there, bow here. Venerate this icon. Do not step on that beam. So a dojo should have all those particulars. But it should also have, in their dojo etiquette, the kind of universal... Meaning they, they're always there. Human cultures have always had these etiquette prescriptions. They address nearly everyone at nearly all times. In, in what way? In an ego-detaching way. In an ego-reconciling way. Because that is part of the main practice, not ikkyo, nikkyo, sankyō. So I'll read some of those sections here in our dojo etiquette. And I'll give you exactly how we... Um, fit dojo etiquette in in what is the experience or how does a person that joins the dojo come to know the dojo etiquette, okay? In the trial period, we don't hold anyone accountable to the dojo etiquette because I want to see how observant they are. What do they see everyone else doing? the person that is trainable, the person that is karmically in place to engage upon the way, the path of ego reconciliation is going to look at other people. If they see everyone cleaning the mat, they're going to clean the mat. And if they're going to clean the mat, They're not going to come into the dojo with dog shit between their toes or smelly armpits or groin smell or bad breath or dirty or with poison oak or intoxicated. They're not going to be, do you see? It's, It's the same thing. It just keeps extending from physical components all the way up to behavioral components. They won't come in intoxicated. They won't come in as assholes. They won't be mean to other people. They won't belittle the women. They won't abuse the weak. They will defer to the sensei. They will stay engaged into the sensei-deshi relationship and use it as the tool mentioned in the last episode. So... We don't give them etiquette. It's not until I officially offer them membership. Which sometimes is four weeks, but sometimes it's been two, three months. Why does it get extended? Because they're kind of exhibiting trainability and sometimes not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. No. It will extend it. What does it matter? We're not financially dependent upon them. And they bring good, good opportunities for the deshi that are training in ego reconciliation to address their presence. So after they are officially entering into a dojo membership, they become part of the temple in a way. That's when they get etiquette. And at each time, the whole dojo rereads the etiquette. And as I said, in the etiquette, it's not those simple, the, the way the modern Aikidoka, they just love those little five rules that they say O oh, sensei wrote, especially the one about practice should be done in a joyful manner. Quite contrasting from what I have said, where practice should be terrifying and quite contrasting from a dojo that called itself Hell Dojo. But that is so appealing to the modern ego. There's only five rules. Everything else goes. And it should all be personally enjoyable. So when a new Jesse joins the whole dojo rereads the etiquette. And the first paragraph is the following. Proper observance of etiquette is as much a part of your training as learning technique. So it's not it's not extra. It is the training as was mentioned. Continuing In many cases, observing proper etiquette requires one to set aside his or her pride or comfort, things a warrior must always be ready to do. Proper etiquette works to keep training safe, to keep members in harmony with each other, and to deepen your level of practice, all things I've mentioned. The warrior is found in the way of the warrior, and the way of the warrior is grounded in etiquette. Again, how and why? Because the overlap is in the reconciled ego, in the no-self, in the unattachment to self. Please be mindful of the importance of etiquette. Please remember, the dojo is here to change you. You are not here to change the dojo. We have a sign that says that over the door when you walk in, in the dojo. And this goes back to the analogy in Budo, long established, that the deshi is like the forging of a sword. Here we're talking about the sharpening. The sharpening stone must be harder than the steel blade. Otherwise, it does not sharpen. If the blade cuts through the stone, there's no transformation. The stone must maintain its integrity and it is the role of the blade to have parts of it removed. Again, very, very strange concept. in the modern era and in contemporary Aikido where every personality every ego is to be appreciated and validated and reified. And again, you do that and uh, why are you asking how or why This toxic individual is in your dojo and you're forced to either hurt them physically or emotionally. Continuing with the etiquette. Part one, general etiquette. Prior to attending a class not on your intended training schedule be sure to contact that class instructor and let them know you are planning to attend. This was something I should have mentioned. You can read about this on our website. The dojo is not a gym. It does not hold classes and you show up here or there as is convenient for you. Why? Because the way is in commitment. And commitment is in sacrifice. Meaning, The way is more in what you do not do than in what you do. So here, there's a minimum training requirement. It is a minimum of two days per week. But it's understood as a minimum, like in in every way. And culturally, everybody understands no one should be training at the minimum. But as a minimum, it's understanding that people cannot mature in the way from the get-go. So while we hold that everyone should train daily, and most do here, and while we have our ducks in a row whereby we can have classes daily, we allow for it to be a learning curve. People will learn how to commit and how to stop doing other things that only reify the ego. But at the same time, if you can't make two days a week, you're out. That's one of the things the trial member is asked at the get-go. Can you easily meet all the dojo requirements, one of them being the minimum training requirement of two days per week? If you can't, come back and try another trial period next year when you can. Another one is the intended training schedule here mentioned. You need to cultivate discipline. And to train here or there as you see fit is convenience. And convenience reifies the ego. Discipline makes a problem of the ego. Discipline brings the ego into training. So you have to have a schedule. And you have to commit to the schedule. And of course, there's going to be times when you can't make it. And when when you cannot make it, you have to own it. You have to show responsibility. You have to reflect upon it. And it's a very simple ritual that you do in order to do that. You just send the teacher an absence notification. You don't get to dismiss it. Part one, general etiquette number two. Strive to extend the essence of proper etiquette to areas outside of the dojo. You should not have one type of behavior inside of the dojo and another type of behavior outside of the dojo. The way cannot be yours if you do not strive to claim it as a fully integrated part of your life. So historically, philosophically, I already mentioned how those early Budo pioneers were already doing that. They expanded the temple walls. But here in our etiquette, it's point number two. Hey, this is our expectation. We, we do not hold the position that all that matters is you doing your little exercises, your, little, your techniques. We don't care about that. Three. All protocols are directly related to promotion, demotion, membership approval, and dojo expulsion. No element is too small to be overlooked, and all breaches of etiquette will result in at least one or more of the following, one-on-one discussions, which I mentioned already, and or peer reviews, and or temporary or permanent expulsion from the dojo. Again, quite contrary to how most of us through our ego, would rather have a dojo. Because we're not interested, because we don't even believe that we can experience the God consciousness, that there is another aspect in our mind with which we maintain our sanity, deepen our relationships, and experience the world entirely differently than through the ego tripartite. And nor do we believe that that is necessary to do the techniques themselves. We don't believe that. The modern Aikidoka does not believe that. But that was the founder's position. And that was the position of those early pioneer Budoka. The way is narrow. It's not all ways. Today I was having a conversation with one of the followers and there's this, and it's very, very common, you know. Oh, uh, you should have an open mind. And it's held as virtuous because we live in the ego tripartite reality. The idea to the ego that I might not be the best I can be right now as is is terrifying and there's nothing more satisfying than than, uh, the uh, virtue of the open mind. Bullshit. The way is narrow. It is not all encompassing. And what you need most of all is the discriminating mind you do not train below you, then you must know what is below you. And you must know what is above you. And that is the discriminating mind. You must know when your ego is triggered. You must see why. You don't want that path. You don't want that icon. And you want to step on that beam. And in order to see that, you need the discriminating mind. You don't need the open mind that tells you it's all bullshit, you don't worry about it. Just sit in this chair and do your mindfulness training. And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be an hour. You could actually do it for 30 seconds. Studies have found that 30 seconds of mindfulness meditation actually leads to a happier life. It's just self-indulgent bullshit. Why is Aikido practice all over the internet so effing gentle? Why is everyone being incrementally lowered to the ground and allowed to throw themselves because the ego is terrified of being thrown for real and experiencing pain. All of it goes together. The way is narrow for repeated and gross breaches in etiquette will always result in the termination of dojo membership and a cessation of one's sensei-deshi relationship. Again, there, therein is that, that equation. The teacher is the dojo. It goes, It's simultaneous. To have membership terminated is to bring an end to the sensei-deshi relationship and vice versa. And the last one, again, noting the centrality of the Sensei Deshi technology. Respond promptly and or note any and all communications made by the teacher. This section here sets up the position, as was mentioned, that you are here to bring these things. To bring your behavior. To bring your being. To bring who you are. In that they are. In that all those things are the functioning of your ego tripartite. Onto the table of training. They're not off the table. They are the table. As that first section sets up the context for what follows. Here is where we have. Those kind of universal rules that are just part of the way. Wherever it manifested, whether it was in Judaism or Islam or Hinduism or Christianity, it doesn't matter. All of the manifestations of the perennial philosophy are about ego detachment, ego reconciliation the cessation of the ego tripartite. And these stand in conjunction, but differently than those dojo particulars that I mentioned earlier. So here, they're called attitudinal protocols. Here's the first one. You'll see how they capture all types of egocentric behaviors. The dojo is a sacred space and as such should at all times be treated like one. This is an effort to bring in the tool of veneration into the dojo. It's not a gym. It's not a dance hall. How you sit, how you speak, Everything has an air that displaces you, decentralizes you in your social environment, and upholds and venerates the dojo. So this is how uncleanliness intoxication, vandalism, etc., is brought into the training equations. And when you understand that the teacher is the dojo, now you can see, oh, this is bringing in other social aspects because if the teacher is the dojo then every other deshi in the dojo is the teacher's deshi which means they are sacred to you as the individual which now brings a social behavior so you're going to be angry towards this senpai. You're going to speak to them in foul language or or you're going to belittle this, you're a male deshi, and you're going to belittle this female deshi. Or you're going to uh, kick this child member that's holding the kicking shield through the wall because you won't adjust your technique. Or you're going to slam this older person who cannot take That Nikyo lock, you're not going to adjust towards what they're doing. This is all not addressing the, the sacrality. You're not lowering yourself. You're not venerating these things. You're above it all. And that only just reifies the ego. But when you understand the entire space and all the relationships therein as sacred, like a beam you don't step on, your ego and your attachment to your ego and the desires to enact your ego become problematized. They become part of the training. Two, strive to be a kind friendly, sharing, responsible, virtuous and truthful person. Be brave be open, be sensitive, be helpful be giving, be honorable, be loyal be respectful and always maintain your personal integrity. How does that work? It works like this. All virtue, all human virtue is born through and cultivated through only through the reconciled ego. Every single vice that any culture has ever noted is a product of the unreconciled ego. And since you are not your ego, let alone the unreconciled ego, when you follow your egoic drives, when you you behave and exist egocentrically in the dojo, you have lost your personal integrity. Because when you go deeper into the egoic drives, what do you see? You see a bondage to fear. Three, learn to recognize your own ignorance and go forward with self-correction. So again, we're not, this is all about training. Training in what? Ego detachment. It's not a... I don't even want to say puritanical, but in the colloquial sense, it's not a a puritanical moral code. We're not interested in keeping score of who's good and who's bad. They're not interested in that. So it's always about adjustment, reorientation. It's always about ownership, yes, but for the sake of moving forward. Because to not move forward is actually egoic. Only the ego gets stuck on the past. Only the ego collects grievances. Only the ego suffers depression. Only the ego seeks social validation, making correction impossible. 4. Do not commit crimes or serious social affronts inside or outside of the dojo. Your private life reflects back on the dojo and such things will not be tolerated. Again expand those temple ground walls outward. Do not create drama or add to drama in the dojo. Do not gossip or conspire against any other member. So right there, you've taken off that yin variant of the will to power. Oh, we're going to socially ostracize this person who's kind of weird. Seek union, harmony, acceptance, and cohesion with all other members. Again, the very marks of the art itself. Practice Shoshin, beginner's mind. What does that really mean? It means be the Deshi. Empty your cup. If you can't do that, don't enter into a Sensei Deshi relationship. If you don't want that, go away. There's nothing here for you. We don't just teach techniques. And the last one, follow the golden rule. Again, you can see these are all encapsulating. Every vice, meaning every egoic behavior, is now made part of the training equation because it is captured by this segment of the dojo etiquette, which itself falls in a larger context of the practice itself, where the temple walls are pushed out and capture the entirety of our lives. We've had, we always have, you're going to have, the Buddha is not going to walk into your door. You cannot wait for the Buddha to walk into your dojo, and that is who you train just as you sharpen a sword, you make the Buddha. That's the technology. So then you have to understand that there's going to be egoic behavior in the dojo. And all egoic behavior is asocial, is disharmonious, is conflictual, and more importantly, is antithetical to the technology of self that is Buddha. And so you must find a way to bring it into the training itself. It is not something. You try to get rid of by either the enforcer technique or the gossiper technique. So you have to teach the deshi what egoic behavior is. You have to teach the deshi how it is self-subverting. You have to teach the deshi the skill of release. And you have to teach the deshi access to the God-consciousness. And in order to do that, you need the vice. You need the asocial behavior. You need the dull blade so that you can sharpen it. These behaviors, therefore, they cannot be considered antithetical to the functioning of your dojo. They're only antithetical in the non-functioning dojo. Because the non-functioning dojo has no solution for them. Has no means by which to integrate them. Does not know what to do with them. And the non-functioning dojo is just a working of the egocentric mind. And that's why its only go-to solutions are that enforcer gossiper. That's why that person brings so much anxiety to everyone in the dojo. Jesus was criticized because from the ranks of his disciples were women of ill repute, tax collectors, foreigners, outsiders, outcasts. But this is exactly who the way is for. Not not just in the sense that they need it more. But in the sense that these are the functioning parts of the technology of self that is the reconciled ego and the doorway to communion with God. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R dot com or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.